Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Anytime there are shortages, decisions have to be made. If there's not enough food to go around, questions of who gets it and who decides who gets it become paramount. Medical ethicists have long considered questions of who gets what treatment and who goes without. And in this age of pandemic, questions of healthcare rationing are not simply academic. Already in New York City, healthcare workers are deciding who gets a bed, who gets a ventilator. The people who don't might pull through or they might die. So here to talk about the ethical questions that underlie these decisions is Dr. Kimball Cornu. He's an assistant professor of healthcare ethics and palliative medicine at St. Lewis University. Dr. Cornu, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you teach healthcare ethics to medical students and undergrads alike, and you're also on St. Louis University's Ethics Committee. But I'm wondering if these issues have ever hit so close to home before for you. No, I have not um, experienced this uh, this closely. Um, I was a uh, medical resident uh, during the H1N1 uh, outbreak in 2009, where I've taken care of patients with H1N1, but not to the um, allocation um, ethical questions that we are now facing acutely across the country. So you study these issues. In general, how do physicians decide who to treat first? Well, in um, in a non-epidemic um, uh, pandemic situation, mm-hmm. um, it would typically be a first-come, first-serve basis. Okay. You, you don't have to ration it. You come in the door, you get it. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to ration. But um, when you when you start have to making rationing decisions, um, a, a majority or a, a common approach that um, ethicists will use is a utilitarian approach. Um, very simply, and this is an oversimplification, but the greatest um, good for the greatest number of people, um, which can sound like a calculus, and you're doing um, calculations and just maximizing numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but there can be biases in how these utilitarian calculus uh, is is done, um, and so there are, there have been a lot of discussions um, among medical ethicists, clinical ethicists across the country uh, over the past few weeks about. Um, starting to utilize a lot of the information that we've already generated over the past uh, few decades about how to respond to a pandemic. It's a part of a, a um, realm of ethics called disaster ethics or disaster medicine ethics. So people have been um, studying this long before we got to this point. Absolutely. Um, when, uh, for example, when you have uh, Katrina, mm-hmm. um, what do you do? That's a very acute rationing, so Charity Hospital in New Orleans, what were the doctors going to do when you have, uh, if you have no power, mm-hmm. who are you going to save? So you have to start bag ventilating. Um, when you've had uh, the SARS pandemic in 2003, the um, H5N1 in 2005, um, H1N1 in 2009, Ebola in 2014. So there have been many um, intellectuals, uh, academics working on this, and there have been some seminal papers that have been cited, um, especially over these past few weeks. 
So now that we're at this point where this question could start becoming very real and in other parts of the world is already very real, who has to decide these things? Is this something where hospital administrators are coming up with what the policy would be for each institution? So there is... So the first thing to know is there is no national policy mm-hmm. about how to uh, do triage in a resource allocation issue. And, of course, that's because living in the United States, we have a federalist uh, political philosophy where you have some centralization, but you have a lot of um, authority given to the more local level. So there's variation. Um, it could be as granular as an individual hospital mm-hmm. Um could be if there's a group of hospitals uh, in a system, they could have a system-wide policy. Um, it could be a state, and various states have generated their own uh, resource allocation policies. Uh, New York, Maryland, Michigan, for example, have uh, generated some of these policies before the um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you have a sense of whether Missouri has done that uh, prior to this? My understanding is Missouri as a state has not worked on a statewide um, policy. Okay. So this is something where it's probably going to be in the hands of people on a lower level than that. Correct. Correct. Now, at the same time, I was very intrigued to see that the director of the Federal Health Department's Civil Rights Office said, and this is according to the New York Times, that his office was opening a series of civil rights investigations. And the idea is to ensure that states did not allow medical providers to discriminate on the basis of disabilities, race, age, or certain other factors when deciding who would receive life-saving medical care. Um, And the, the director was quoted as saying, persons with disabilities, with limited English skills, and older persons should not be put at the end of the line for health care during emergencies. So when you're looking at that utilitarian calculus, what even can be considered without triggering um, some sort of federal pushback? Absolutely. So um, in uh, before the um, Office of Civil Rights put out that um, bulletin last Saturday, there have been some draft policies that were circulating And some of them were based on some of these seminal papers that I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. about how to do triage in a time of pandemic. And um, these papers, um, they they have a general uh, framework. So they'll first have an inclusion criteria. So what patients do you start need to to consider for uh, some of these resources? So does someone need a ventilator, for example, or Mm -hmm. does someone have blood pressure, uh, like low blood pressure that needs to be taken care of in an ICU? Then the next step would be, what are the exclusion criteria? So what people would we not take care of? And this is where it's most controversial. And one of the original papers um, from 2006 talks about certain kinds of patients that they're not trying to be discriminatory in the sense of we don't like these certain groups of people, but um, making when you have a limited number of resources, um, certain groups of patients might require more more resources just for maintenance. Um, So some of these categories would be someone with uh, severe baseline cognitive deficits. Mm -hmm. Of course, what if you have an intellectual disability or if you have dementia or um, or persistent vegetative state, for example. Um, Another um, exclusion criteria would be uh, if you're advanced uh, neuromuscular disease. So what if you had um, ALS? so, but what if you already needed tube feeding? So mm-hmm. you have extra resources that would be required. And so that was part of the exclusion criteria for one of these papers. 
And so some of these policies that um, were being, have been drawn up say, well, this is what's in the literature, and that seems to make sense. If we have limited resources, why don't we just, you know, limit who's certain people that get it? But the disability community um, and those that advocate for um, the elderly rightly say, but wait a minute, is there already bias mm-hmm. in these exclusion criteria? Um, and if you say that there's a protocol, does that make it seem to be more objective? Um, so I think that's what the um, Office of Civil Rights was pointing to, is um, one that was cited in some of the news articles um, in relation to that bulletin was the state of Alabama and their draft drafted policy, where it would specifically cited um, severe cognitive impairment at baseline. Hmm. Um, and so the feds um, are now but, saying you can't you can't make that an exclusion. Is that correct? Well, yeah, so, correct. So they, they say you can't use that as an exclusion, but then so that means there are drafting drafted policies that will have to scramble and probably uh, try to assess that. Hmm. Um, but then what, and really what I think these, this triage process wants to do ultimately, if, if you think about these competing ethical issues, is um, can, what kind of clinical data will help us figure out which patients will in the short term survive? Mm. And in the long, long term, if they were going to, so one thing that has been considered is, well, if the patient had, say, advanced metastatic cancer and their life expectancy was short before having COVID, so six, to, six months to a year, then that could be a consideration of being lower. It's not because it's discriminatory about that person's value, but because even without the infection, they may not live very long. Okay. Um, so you can't rule someone so, out in sort of a broad category of we're going to say all old people get nothing. Correct. But you could correct. say, hey, because of this particular condition that this person has, even if they are that is coupled with being old, that might well be a factor. That might be, and that's the key. It's a might. It shouldn't be a blanket, absolutely not. Okay. Um, because in one more dimension of uh, this triage process is um, if you look, if you start looking around at um, the actual clinical guidelines, or not guidelines, but um, clinical um, data that is being used, there's a assessment tool called SOFA, and then it's also M-SOFA or Q-SOFA. It depends on which one you want to use, but SOFA means um, uh, sequential organ failure assessment. And depending on which one of these SOFAs uh, you use, it looks at various organ systems hmm. and how, um, how well or not well that organ system is working. And then if it's, if it's working well, then you have um, lower points, but if you have more dysfunction, you get a higher number of points. And so, so, um, so then you add up those different organ systems, and then the higher the number, the greater predictor of mortality. So this really is breaking us down sort of into each of our parts, our various components, yeah. and that's really turning it mathematical. That's that's fascinating. Um, we're talking today to Dr. Kimball Cornu. He's an assistant professor of healthcare ethics and palliative medicine at St. Louis University, helping us understand some of these questions that uh, bioethicists deal with. I actually do want to go to the phone lines. I'm Colleen Starkloff, who's the co-founder of the Starkloff Disability Institute, which advocates for people with disabilities in the St. Louis area. She's here on the line. Um, Colleen, hi. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Sarah, and hi, Dr. Cornu. Thank you very much for including me. Um, I'd like to add a little context to this, if I might, from from the disability side, But and I have 
three specific things I'd like to share with you. Um, the first thing I want to tell the audience is that there are there is federal law, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 that is very specific uh, on this issue about um, crisis of care standards or what we're referring to as health care rationing. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, the ADA and Section 504 require that government decisions about how treatment should be allocated must be made based on individualized determinations, so using current objective medical evidence and not based on generalized assumptions about a person's disability. So mm-hmm. the mere fact that a person has diabetes, depression, and intellectual disability, as the doctor mentioned, a mobility impairment, for example, cannot be a basis for denying care or making that person a lower priority to receive treatment. And that's what Roger Severino said in his in the Office of Civil Rights, uh, Health and Human Services decision. It's you, you can't send disabled people to the back of the line. Mm-hmm. Second, the ADA and 504 prohibit treatment allocation decisions from being made based on a misguided per, uh, on misguided presumption assumptions that people with disabilities experience a lower quality of life and that our lives are not worth living. And and third, the ADA and Section 504 prohibit treatment allocation decisions from being made based on the perception that a person with a disability has a lower prospect of survival. So in in relation to this, I've lived this. Mm -hmm. Uh, My my late husband, Max Starkloff, had a C3-4 spinal cord injury. He had a very significant disability. He was also a local, state, national, international disability rights leader and became that person after becoming disabled mm-hmm. at 21 years mm-hmm. old. In mm. his later years in life, he was on a ventilator. Um, even before he was on a vent, when we would go into the emergency room for some health issue, if he needed crisis care, needed to be intubated because he had pneumonia one time, the doctor, the ER doctor said to me, should we save his life? Hmm. I don't know if, if they ask that of everybody before they intubate them. I, I don't know, but I don't care. Um, even when he was up in the ICU for, for treatment during the last 10 years of his life and was on a ventilator, they, there were questions asked of me. One time he coded, and the nurses said, um, should we save his life? And, and the head nurse said, you're damn right we're going to save his life. That's Max Starkloff. But that should be said about everybody with a disability. But I saw it. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, save his life. The other thing that's happening, is, it's already happened in the state of Kansas, and there's one other state where if you are already on a ventilator and you go into a hospital for care for COVID or for the COVID virus, if you go in right now in a pandemic situation, the hospital can take away your ventilator for someone else. This is a very, very slippery slope. So the I, 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 the things that are being said about these papers and everything and, and listing somebody with intellectual disability as maybe a life not worth living, that's someone's family. That's someone somebody loves. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind people that disability matters to every one of us. We either have family members or friends, spouses, grandparents who have a disability. We love them. But at any given time, any human being can become disabled as a result of injury, accident, illness, 
or you can age into disability. We all have a stake in this. Our lives are lives worth living. Colleen, that is a, a great reminder, um, and I want to thank you for sharing your insight into all of that. Uh, Dr. Cornu, that seems like just a great example of of the points yeah. that you're talking about that people uh, mm-hmm. made to get the federal uh, health department's attention on this issue. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I really appreciate uh, Colleen's comments uh, to br- provide this context because um, I am not one that um, wants to be cold and calculating. Mm-hmm. Um, as an ethicist, because I do practice palliative care as well as a physician. And this is where I have direct conversations with families um, and loved ones and patients about what is your most important value. And for someone who is disabled, for example, um, oftentimes those that are disabled among us have more to offer us as we consider our own, what do, we, what do we value the most? Is it our ability to conquer the world, or can we conquer the world in a different kind of way that we haven't imagined? And that kind of imagination, I think, is needed in this time, that we're all dependent. We're all disabled in a certain sense, and that we need one another um, in our communities, whether it be our faith communities, um, or staying connected in our time of social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the disability community has a lot to teach us. Yes, I, I know you're right about that. And we are talking today to Dr. Kimball Cornu. He's an assistant professor of healthcare ethics and palliative medicine at St. Louis University. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Kimball Cornu. He's an assistant professor of healthcare ethics and palliative medicine at St. Louis University, and he's helping us understand some of the issues that medical ethicists and bioethicists deal with when it comes to things like the pandemic that we're currently living in. Um, Dr. Cornu, I couldn't help but think about these issues this weekend. There was a story in the New York Times about how in New York City, paramedics were having to decide who got to go to the hospital or not, and how this could end up being a life or death decision for some patients, even though they were guessing who was good to stay home, who might be better to stay home. In some cases, people were dying because of the choices they had to make. How does that work when hospitals come up with a policy or larger healthcare groups, but it's actually third, third-party providers like EMS workers or city firefighters who are having to make those decisions on the ground? Uh, that is, um, well, from my perspective, I haven't thought a lot about that particular question. Um, mm-hmm. And this is where a more uh, uh, corporate or a larger scale um, policy would be helpful. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I, I think each organization involved in these things uh, would have to talk about them. So uh, the EMS companies, they would probably have to talk about this um, within their own circles uh, and be in constant com- communication with the hospitals that they serve. And this is actually a key point um, in all of this conversation. I'm glad that I even have this opportunity to speak about this because transparency in how, what these policies are, how they're uh, generated, um, and then the institutions that need to work together to ensure that um, there is some kind of common 
goal and, and, and common message so that um, there is not so much discordance and confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if I were the EMS worker on the ground, I, I don't have a lot of good advice um, in that situation, honestly. There's so much adrenaline pumping, and unless there's been a lot of reflection beforehand, mm-hmm. a lot of training beforehand, I think you just, they trust the training to have and they'll just go. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think these people, it's, if they don't have any guidance, they're going to try to save that person's life and they'll go to whatever hospital will let them come. And because that's what they do and that's their job. And they take that uh, work with pride. So my understanding is that we are not yet at this point of triage decision-making in St. Louis. Do you and your colleagues have a sense of how close we are to getting to that point? Um, I think my opinion and my colleague's opinion will be just as good as anyone else's, uh, at least on on the ground level that I am. Mm -hmm. There are um, uh, administrators, um, hospital administrators, uh, especially where I work um, at at SSM, um, that have more access to data Mm -hmm. um, and seeing what's happening in other states, um, what they're seeing in their own hospitals. I am personally concerned when I see um, the the rate of increase, like 600% increase um, over the weekend. Yeah, some uh, of those numbers day. this weekend were, were pretty sober. Yeah. So so are we are we starting to hit an exponential curve? Um, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't speak with authority. But when I when I start reading on, for myself about what's happening in other areas before us, mm-hmm. um, I I wonder. But Whenever that comes, and I honestly hope it never comes, but if, when it does come, or if it does come, um, there are um, people high up uh, in conversation, um, uh, leaders um, in our community, in our hospital systems. Um, they're in communication with each other about what kind of resources do we have and how are we, how we going to work together to ensure that um, patients that need to be taken care of actually can be and not because they went to the wrong hospital. Mm-hmm. And so even though we don't have this sort of statewide uh, policy, to the best of your knowledge, of how we should proceed on these, it sounds like people are having these conversations and thinking very seriously about these decisions. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, there are a lot of people in the policymaking arena in terms of uh, triage. Um, they're all sharing notes and having active discussions across the country, picking the brains of those in New York, those in Washington, those in California, um, what has worked, what hasn't worked, what, you know, what are the missteps. Um, and so that for those of us, like Missouri, where we're less at that point, but mm-hmm. when, we, when, that, when that tidal wave comes, what is the ideal uh, policy? Knowing that execution is, is going to, um, could vary depending on where so another facet of this that I find myself contemplating are what are healthcare workers' responsibilities in a time like this? Like, for example, are nurses and doctors expected to do their work even if they can't get adequate personal protective equipment? Is that something that the bioethics um, addresses? So um, the, the way that the bioethics community would talk about it would be more generality. Um, you know, you took an oath. This is the duty to the patient. Yes, you should do these things. So it has a, an air of this is the professional responsibility. Mm-hmm. But what if a physician or a nurse says, but I have kids. Um, do I just call in sick? Mm-hmm. Um, there was 
there have been some articles over the, the weekend addressing this issue. What if, what if everyone starts not showing up, mm-hmm. but, you're, but you do uphold this ideal? Um, you're sacrificing yourself. Um, but can you really compel someone to do that? I mean, so those are two, two different questions. What should a healthcare provider feel that they should be doing? But what if they don't want to do it? Can you compel them to come? And yeah. I don't think we've gotten to the point where you can compel someone legally. Okay. You think if somebody says, hey, I'm the sole provider for six kids right now, um, I'm going to choose not to come in at this point because I, I can't destroy the life for these six people. You think the employer would have to stand down? I, I, I don't... I, I'm not certain how that would actually play out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's almost I, a legal question, which is obviously not your area of expertise. But in terms yeah. of the ethics of it, you, you feel like there's some some questions. What, what I could see, what I could see happening, how it would unfold, is a nurse or a physician could say, "I really feel uncomfortable at this," and they would tell their supervisor. It could be, um, if you're a nurse, it could be your, you know, your charge nurse, or maybe even the nursing supervisor or a physician. You tell your your department chair and say, "I really feel uncomfortable about this. I'm, yeah, I am a single parent, and I have these children, and I don't want to orphan them." Mm-hmm. And they might say, "Either we understand, or so it would be handled locally, or." They could say, well, you took this oath, you took this duty. So appealing to this kind of uh, deeper, um, richer kind of professional ethic. But I don't know if I could make that decision for someone, Mm -hmm. uh, to be frank, Um, because there's always going to be a loss of goods either way. These are all competing goods. These are all good things. Um, But do we just say, well, this is wartime, and you start using military language? Well... Um, we all have to make sacrifices. Okay, but then what are you going to do? Are you going to pay me more? Are you going to give me free housing if I can't go home? I mean, what, it, what are you going to do for me? So um, I believe it was an emergency room, uh, emergency medicine physician wrote a piece for The Atlantic a few days ago, mm-hmm. and he was talking about this issue of, well, what if I'm on the front lines and I'm working 12-hour shifts while I'm wearing an N95 mask, I never take it off, like maybe for my 12 hours because I don't want to infect myself. Mm-hmm. And, but what if I start com- keep coming in every day, and, but we're all in this together, but then some people start not coming. Uh, that your backup says they can't come in, or your colleagues says they can't come in, or all the nurses somehow get sick because they have zero PPE. What do you do? And he didn't really have an answer, and I honestly don't have an answer either. <laughs> Maybe there aren't um, answers, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it is really a... That is a crisis of the deepest order, Um, and I hope you don't get there. Yes. We're talking to Dr. Kimball Cornu. He's an assistant professor of healthcare ethics and palliative medicine at St. Louis University. One of the other issues that um, I feel like hasn't been talked about quite as much, but maybe there's people who feel bothered by this. We see actors and NBA players getting mm. in the front of the line for testing. And, and we commoners, if we feel like we're getting symptoms, we have to fight to get a test. Or sometimes it, it seems like it takes seven days to get results. Um, is that ethical for people to be able to get in the front of the line because of their ability to pay for it or their importance to the ecosystem? Um, sadly, this, this is not a new issue. Um, and it just becomes more acute in a time of pandemic when there is a prop has been a problem with testing. Um, there's an, something among health uh, among physicians that if you that we've gone through training and been attending is sometimes there's something called VIP medicine, 
Hmm. If there's someone that's been a donor to the hospital um, that may be very wealthy and they expect certain things, and sometimes physicians are like, okay, we'll give you your own room. We'll you know, give you almost, well, not your own wing, but we'll give you your own, own room. You'll have your own personal physician. You won't have any trainees. And oftentimes these patients actually get more testing, more CT scans because the patient requested it, um, even though they don't need it. Um, that's not really ethical practice either, but that happens. Um, I, I can't say where, but I know it happens. So is it okay for a celebrity just because, well, they wanted it? Mm-hmm. I, frankly, no, I don't think so, unless they are contributing to helping other people. Um, so it might be ethical, uh, say, for a physician who's working on the front lines for them to be able to get the test and the results so much faster than the rest of us, because that actually can make a difference. Yes, because if you have a physician who is actively seeing patients and they don't know if they have the infection or not, but maybe their symptoms are mild, mm-hmm. well, if they knew that they didn't have the infection, then they can keep on seeing patients. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they did have the infection, then they know to stop. Um, so I, I do think that there are certain things, certain kinds of data, and this is a major issue that has framed the whole COVID-19 pandemic is data or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. You know, massive decisions that are made and the, and the lack of good data, we have to do lockdown procedures, um, social distancing. But if we had gotten ahead of this earlier, then it wouldn't have been a problem. So I'm not going to be partisan, but the fact that there there's even a question about whether celebrities should be getting this test or not. Honestly, it's it's sad that it was even an issue to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you make a good point there. But I mean, look, in the last couple minutes we have here, there is one really important thing I wanted to make sure we got a chance to talk to you about today. And that is that for most of us, we're in this camp of people with average resources. This doesn't come down to trying to buy our way into getting a wing of the hospital uh and our very own ventilator. But Uh what's one thing we should be doing right now to prepare for all of this and, and this age that we're now suddenly living in? Yes. Um, I think the biggest thing I would recommend, and this would be for everyone, myself included, is don't waste your COVID. And what I mean by that is COVID has, has touched every part of our lives. It's turned it upside down. It's been this um, menace that has, well, pun intended, uh, infected every part of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's, it causes fear, it causes anxiety, and rightfully so. Um, we, we don't know, as the, the previous uh, guest talked about, because we don't have a cure. So that's why bus drivers are scared. Um, but they're, they're putting themselves on the line because they want to serve other people. Well, for every single one of us, we don't wa- waste this time of fear and anxiety, but let it be an opportunity to reflect more deeply about what is most important to us. So that it could be a time of maybe recalibrating our habits um, to reconsider what is what is most important. Um, it can be almost kind of a revelation. So in the Bible, revelation actually means unveiling. Hmm. And so it can unveil our most deepest values and concerns and loves even. So it could be an existential moment for where we could kind of think about what what makes life beautiful and life good um, in the midst of seeming darkness? 
Well, I love, I love where you took that question. I mean, this is really sort of the core of, of what is the point of being human. That's maybe the question we should be asking ourselves, not yeah. how do we get in line first. Yes, and but to be then to be practical. So I, I am a theologian, so I think about some of these deeper things. But uh, but to get practical is so as we reflect on what's most important to us. Then if if we happen to know someone that's sick, or what if we end up getting sick with COVID, we should have our advanced directives in place mm. to start having those conversations. Who would make decisions for you if you couldn't make them for yourself? And would you ever want to be on a ventilator? If you say I wouldn't want to do that. Then, then if you have that on paper, then you don't have to worry about resource allocation. You can say, you know, that wasn't for me anyway, for whatever reason that might be. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's actually a great reminder. So get your advanced directives in place. Think about what sort of end-of-life measures you would want taken if they were available to you. And, and as you say, also think about what's truly important. So those are two mm-hmm. really great pieces of advice. Dr. Kimball Cornu of St. Louis University, I want to thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.